And when I say emotional decision-making, every time that I've taught this class, at the end, either in the group session or someone has come up to me and said, hey, I just can't believe in a God who, and then fill in the blank with whatever issue that we talked about they struggle with. And, you know, what I want to humbly say is what you believe about God, what you want to believe about God emotionally isn't what makes it true. The truth, we stand on the word of the truth. And so I would encourage you to avoid um, emotional decision-making that if some of the stuff we talk about is not what you would have written, it's still what is written. And the the two dangers to avoid, one related to emotional decision-making, one of them is cafeteria reality. I would just encourage you as you go forward in life to avoid cafeteria reality. And what that is is where, you know, like at Luby's when you're going down the line and you, you well, I like a little bit of this and I'd like to have some of this and, oh, chocolate pudding looks good and this looks good. And what you end up with in cafeteria reality, uh, if you're at Luby's and you're like me, you end up with a plate with about 14,000 calories on it. But in matters of theology, you end up with a warped view of theology that's shaped by your own internal sense of right and wrong. And that's a very dangerous place to develop your theology. And the second thing I want to avoid tonight is speaking with arrogance. I love what uh, A.W. Tozer said. He said, when I preach on the being of God, the attributes of God, when I talk about what God is like and what kind of God he is, I approach it respectfully from afar. I point with a reverent finger to the tall mountain peak, which is God, which rises infinitely above my power to comprehend. And I know that that is only a portion of that God. And so I just want to tell you, my motto on this is to speak humbly and walk faithfully. These are some difficult topics. We'll unpack what the word says, but I'm always wary of someone who speaks with a great deal of conviction about the mysteries of God and can't support it scripturally. So my goal tonight is that ultimately, if you have an issue with what we talk about, your issue is not going to be with me, but it'll be with the word of God. But I want to say everything that we talk about in a humble manner, because this is, this is, a, this is a topic that the church has struggled with for 2,000 years and rightly understanding how the Bible informs this issue. So let's start with who is saved and just walk through the prevailing theories on who is saved. The first one is universalism. And this is the Goldilocks approach, right? This is love and mercy went out in the end, regardless of what we say or believe, uh, everybody in the end is saved. And People who are universalists will try to support this scripturally. They'll point, among other things, to Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, where Paul says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And they point to that and say, see, in the end, we all end up believing in Jesus. And the problem with that is if you just look back about 10 verses before that in Philippians 1, 28, Paul says that those who oppose the gospel will face destruction. God's salvation is ultimately witnessed by everyone, but it's only embraced by some. Another place they'll point is 1 Corinthians 15.22, where Paul says, In Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But again, if you just go three verses later, in 25 and 26, we see that there's lots of destruction and damnation uh, for those who do not follow Jesus. So you can't just pull that verse out. And then 1 Timothy 2.4, where it says God desires that all will be saved. And they point to that and say, doesn't God get what God wants? 
And we're going to talk later tonight about the difference between the moral will of God, which does desire for all to be saved, and his decreed will, which is what he brings to pass. But the, the ultimate takeaway on universalism is it has never been part of the Orthodox Church tradition that all people are saved. And you can point to many places in Scripture for why that's the case. The second one is inclusivism. Which inclusivists will say that Jesus Christ's atoning work is the basis for salvation, but that can be appropriated by means other than the gospel. And what an inclusivist is basically saying is that you were saved because you were worthy of it, either by the fervorance of your devotion to the religion that you followed, even if it wasn't the gospel, or because of some moral qualities in your life. What we really see in inclusivism is the emotional response in man to the idea that some people will spend an eternity apart from God informing their theology. But again, you can't, inclusivism, uh, there are churches who, who support that, but that is not, as we'll walk through tonight, the best reading of the scripture. Now, the orthodox view, exclusivism, which is what watermark uh, would hold to and, and most any current Protestant Orthodox Church says, look, there's only one way to Jesus, John, or only one way to be saved, John 14, 6, no man comes to the Father but through me, John three sixteen through 18, whosoever believes in the Son shall have eternal life, and Romans 10, verses 13 and 15, and Those are just three of an innumerable amount of places in Scripture where the Bible clearly says that salvation is based on Christ alone and our faith in Christ. Now, the last one is not really a theory of who is saved, annihilationism, but really it's a theory of what judgment might happen. Because you see, there are people who are exclusivists who say, look, the Bible seems very clear that salvation is by Christ alone. I get that. But I can't wrap my brain around this idea of eternal separation for those who did not believe in Christ, this idea of eternal punishment. And so there's this concept of annihilationism, which just says that those who aren't saved at death ultimately just cease to exist. The problem with that is it's just not supportable scripturally. Now, there was a book that came out uh, a couple years ago that caused quite a stir. I even played you a video when I spoke a couple weeks ago from that book, Love Wins. And one of the, and it's, it, Rob Bell's not the first to make this argument, but one of the things they talk about is the meaning of the Greek word ionios. Ionios? Am I uh, do justice to that, Nathan? Ionios. I'm from Oklahoma, and you're asking me to pronounce Greek. You know, I do my best. But in Matthew 25, chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, it's the ultimate judgment, right? Where people are appearing before Christ, and some people are being on the left to Ionias, judgment, and other people are put on his right to Ionias, life. Well, that Greek word, depending upon how it's used in context, can mean everlasting, which is how your Bible translates it, most likely, Or it can mean for a period of time, a lifetime. It doesn't necessarily always mean in every use everlasting. But the problem is in that context, it clearly means everlasting. And you're not even being uh, true to the argument when you try to say in the same verse, Ionias as applied to life means eternal because we all want to have forever life. But that same word as applied to judgment only means for a period of time. 
ultimately, annihilationism is an intellectual elixir that tries to make the idea of people not being saved less offensive. Because the doctrine of hell is a, is, a, is a hard doctrine to grapple with, an eternal separation from God. But it is not supportable biblically because when you go in Ionias, as it's used in Revelation 20, verses 10, is the destruction, the fire that's prepared for the devil and his angels. That place that is apart from God is eternal. Oh, lost my, there we go. So let's talk about, and we talked a little bit about this when we talked about suffering, but let's talk about what does the Bible teach about the sovereignty of God? And the first thing is let's define sovereignty. Sovereignty is power. And I would tell you that the Bible, what the Bible says is it is impossible to speak too highly of God's sovereignty. His sovereignty is infinite. God does not take risks because God does not fail. Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he, being God, does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Deuteronomy 32.9, see now that I, I am he, there is no God besides me, it is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. You see, the nature of God's sovereignty is absolute, it's universal, and it's effectual. And we, we have to remember that we use that word to talk about human institutions. In a way, I am sovereign over my children. I can cause my children by force of will to do certain things. But it's not absolute. It's not universal. Because if it were, there would be certain things that happen at school that wouldn't be happening. And it's not always effectual. Sometimes they can thwart what I want to do from them. What I want them to do according to my will. But God, on the other hand, His sovereignty is absolute, universal, and effectual. And because of that, that means God has ultimate control of good, ultimate control of evil, ultimate control of darkness, and of light. A few years ago, Carrie Underwood, who, who I like, uh, by the way, and, and she's a, a, a fellow Okie, um, she sang, had this song called Jesus Take the Wheel. Right, And if you remember in that song, the, the concept is the car is skidding out of control and the, the driver is praying, Jesus, take the wheel. And look, that's a great prayer. If you're in a car spinning out of control, I highly recommend praying for Jesus to take the wheel. But the point is, Jesus wasn't sitting around waiting for her to ask to take the wheel before he took control. In fact, by his will... All things were created and are held together. That's Colossians 1, 17. He's, he didn't have to wait to be asked. You know, there's, I give you several verses about this, and we talked a little bit about it last time on the concept of suffering, but just a couple. Isaiah 45, chapter 45, verses 6 and 7. That men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. 
God is in control. His sovereignty is universal, it's effectual, and it's absolute. Well, if that's true, then what does the Bible teach about the responsibility of man? Well, first of all, let's look at just the actual words of God recorded in Scripture. And when we look at those, it reflects that we have a choice to obey God or rebel against Him. Genesis 2, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree you shall not eat. You all know this verse. What was implicit in that command was, You have a choice. You can do what I say and not eat of the tree, or you can reject the command and eat the forbidden fruit. In Exodus 32, 9, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, they are an obstinate people. I give orders and the people don't follow. That's what Jesus is saying. They're obstinate. They don't, or what God is saying, they don't follow my commands. God's word, which is just as inspired as the word of God, but God's word also reflects that we have the choice to obey him or rebel against him. Joshua 24, 15, probably hung in some of your houses growing up where Joshua is addressing the nation of Israel and he says, look, choose on this day whom you will serve. The gods that your forefathers served, the gods of the Amorites where you live, choose who you're going to serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose an active verb. Joshua is telling these people, you can choose, but I'm telling you, I'm choosing to serve the Lord. Acts 7.51, where the disciples are uh, preaching and they talk about, you men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit just as your fathers did. This concept of resisting, again, it is implicit and explicit in the Bible that man has the choice to obey God or rebel against him. And what is also explicit is that people will be held accountable for whether they obey God or rebel against him. Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. He will render each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, wrath and fury. Galatians 6, 7 through 10, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Romans 14, 12, each of us will have to give an account of himself before God. Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37, where Jesus said, on the judgment day, people will give an account for every worthless word they speak. The Bible in numerous places is clear that there will be an accounting. And there's an accounting because man is responsible. But how can that be, right? How can absolute sovereignty and free will coexist? And this is where the water starts to get a little deeper. Oh, so deep I went past the slide. Um, So the first thing I want to distinguish is between a paradox and an antinomy. If you remember the video I showed you of Martin Bashir interviewing Rob Bell, and, and Martin Bashir was essentially asking the question, is God God or is God good? You know, how could this tsunami have happened in Japan? And Rob Bell said, it's a paradox in the divine. And, and I, that's not a horribly inartful word, but it's not as precise as we'd like to be. A paradox is a teaching tool. It's a apparent inconsistency. It's a rhetorical device where Paul said, I'm sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Or when he said, I am weak yet I'm strong. 
See, I can understand and you can understand how Paul could be sorrowful for the suffering he was experiencing, yet always rejoicing because of the ultimate deliverance he had coming in God. And you can understand how he could be weak in the flesh, yet made strong in faith. So a paradox is nothing more than a rhetorical device that catches your attention. An antinomy, on the other hand, is a contradiction between two logical, equally logical conclusions that seemingly are irreconcilable principles but are also undeniable. Now that's saying a lot, and that's saying a whole lot, but let me give you an example. Light. Quantum physics tells us that things can't be both a particle and a wave. And this, this is an argument, a wonderful argument J.I. Packer made. Quantum physics says, and, and in fact, if you go Google light, the duality of light, that's quantum physics explanation, attempted explanation that, look, we don't know how it's possible. By, very, by its very nature, something should either be a particle or a wave, which is a transmission of motion between particles. It can't be both. But the problem is light exhibits certain traits that make it clear that it acts like a particle and clear that it acts like a wave. And science says we can't reconcile these two seemingly irreconcilable notions, but we know we can't accept one and ignore the other. It's just an antinomy. It's unexplainable. And so what do we do when we're faced by an antinomy? What some people do and, and it would be a less than mature way to approach it, is we seize on all the evidence that supports one side or the other side of this seemingly irreconcilable divide. But the more mature way to approach an antinomy is to absorb the evidence on both sides and understand that somehow these two seemingly irreconcilable, uh, equally, equally irreconcilable, equally logical conclusions can coexist in a way that we can't yet understand. If I go back to the mountain analogy of what Tozer was saying about pointing up to God as this high mountain, that, that, that these irreconcilable um, facts are reconcilable if I see it the way God does, but I don't see it the way God does. And so the specific antinomy we're talking about here is the Romans 9 antinomy, right? Where we struggle with God as king and God as judge. And what I mean by that is God as king, meaning he is sovereign. He causes all things to happen. And yet God as judge, who holds man accountable for what man does, even though we know God is the primary cause of all things. Now, as we look at Romans 9, which is you know, one of the, is the place in Scripture, this, the, the place where we really, as we read it, we think that this, is, this problem uh, is going to unwind itself in a way that we can understand it. First of all, remember, we approach Romans 9 differently than Paul. Paul wrote the book of Romans to Jews. Now, he, it's applicable to all of us, but he was writing specifically in what he was talking about in Romans 9 is he was talking about Israel's failure to respond to the Messiah. Now, what he was saying there is still applicable to us as individuals, but it's, it's important to understand the context in which Romans 9 was addressed. And 
what he does in Romans 9, first of all, is if you want to summarize that chapter, is it says God works out his purpose by such means as choosing Isaac and rejecting Ishmael, choosing Jacob and rejecting Esau before they were even born, or hardening Pharaoh. To which the critic, because if you read Romans, there's a lot of, Paul is answering these series of questions. And so the critic, when, when he talks about this hardening that happened and the fact that he chose Isaac and rejected, or chose Jacob and rejected Esau, the critic says, well, how can God be just choosing one and not the other? Which is interesting because back in Romans 5, this same questioner that Paul, uh, sorry, chapter 3, verse 5, the questioner challenged God for condemning sinners under the principle that the unrighteousness of people reveals the righteousness of God. And so now in chapter 9, he's saying, how can God be just not for condemning sinners, but for having mercy on some? And so what we see is that in its natural state, our minds will always resist what God is doing. Romans 9 verse 16, um, Paul makes it clear that the recipients of God's mercy are not so chosen because God sees something special in them. He doesn't see some genetic trait of obedience that we can't see, but they are chosen purely according to his will. And then in verse 18, where, where, uh, where Paul says, and so God has mercy upon whom he will have mercy and he hardens whom he will harden. Now, the critic says, how can that be fair? How can that be just? Well, first of all, understand the person receiving mercy is not the person getting justice. The person whose heart is being hardened is the person who is receiving justice because all God is allowing to happen is he's allowing a heart that is set against him to run its full course, to be hardened. And so the only person not getting a fair deal, according to Romans 9 and the rest of Scripture, is the person who receives God's mercy. Because the wages of sin is death, and all of us in this room have earned those wages. And so then the questioner in verse 19 says, how can he find fault? For who can resist his will? And like if you're reading Romans 9 for the first time, you're thinking, man, here it is. I'm about to find out. Paul is about to give me the sentence, the two sentences that's going to unlock this mystery. But he doesn't. And I think... It's because, just like I said tonight, we're not going to go any farther than the Scripture allows us to go. Paul would not go any farther in writing the Scripture than the Holy Spirit would him allow him to go. And what he says is he doesn't even attempt to answer the question on the propriety of God's choice. He rebukes the spirit of the question in verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? In some... Romans 9 is not the Cliff Notes version that unlocks this mystery. In fact, it, it just lifts the mystery up. And later in Romans where Paul says, how unsearchable are the ways of God. He doesn't attempt to explain God as king and ignore God as judge or explain God as judge and ignore him as king. He says they both exist. And they, that mystery of how those work together belong to God alone. Now, that's what Scripture says, but I would also want to point you to 
we can observe some things about ourselves that maybe makes this a little more palatable than we think. And the first thing I would tell you is you are not, and I are not as free as we think we are. Now, when I'm talking about freedom, freedom of choice, I'm not talking about when you get home tonight and you have uh, a craving, whether you eat a Twinkie or a Ding Dong. That's not the freedom of choice I'm really talking about, although I think I can show you, uh, I can support to you logically how even that, in that, you're not as free as you think you are. But when I say that we're not free as we think, let me quote to you what Blaise Pascal 400 years ago said. We are slave to what we think brings us the greatest happiness. Whatever means man employs, they all tend to this end. The cause of some men going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both. The will of man never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even to those who hang themselves. What he's saying is we are a slave to our will. I would submit to you, you cannot think of a single decision you have ever made that was not made in the furtherance of what you thought would bring you the greatest happiness. If you go home tonight and have a Twinkie and a Ding Dong, you made that decision because your will told you that the instant gratification of that sugar was what was going to bring you the greatest happiness. If you go home tonight and you eat neither a Twinkie nor a Ding Dong, but you eat a salad without dressing, you're doing that because you know the long-term benefit of health that you get from eating the salad and avoiding junk food is going to bring you the greatest happiness. If you, and I pray no one does, but goes, goes home tonight or in the future and chooses to end their own life, that choice is made because the person thinks it brings them the greatest happiness. Escaping this life would bring them this greatest happiness. We are not as free as we think. And the reason is because we're not as we once were and we're not as we will be in the future. When Adam and Eve broke the deal in Genesis chapter 3, sin entered the world and sin corrupted our will. And we are held in bondage to that will that is that is informed by sin. And someday in the future, we'll be saved from the presence of sin and I won't be in bondage to a will that wants to do nothing but sin. But now I am. John eight thirty four. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. See, sin is not a crutch. It's a cage. It's like a fish. Our will, our sinful will is like an aquarium, right? The fish that are swimming in your aquarium at home have no idea they're in prison. They think this is all there is because it's all they've ever known. They have no idea there's an ocean out there that isn't two feet by two feet. But we swim around in the aquarium of our will, which is bent towards sin. Everyone in this room will naturally bow to the idol of significance, security, and or sensuality. Any sin problem you have, and I heard this from uh, this statement from uh, this man here in the front, and, and I found it to be true of a, a, as long as I've tested it. Any sin I have in my life is a result of me bowing to an idol, following the slave, being enslaved to my will to sin because I love sin, because I want to pursue significant security or sensuality. 
So while you have freedom of choice, you don't have total freedom. You can just, logic supports that. I don't even have to show that biblically, but I can also take you to other places biblically. Romans chapter 6, verses 16 through 20, where Paul says, Present your members not as slaves to sin, but have been set free and are now slaves to righteousness. Titus 3, 3, we were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. And 2 Peter 2, 19, for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So we in this room who think we're free are perhaps not so free as we think. The third thing is I would say that man's provisional sovereignty and God's absolute sovereignty are not mutually exclusive. Now, there are no perfect analogies for this, but let me give you one that might help. If you get in, drive out to DFW Airport and get on a plane that is bound flying north to Toronto, and during that flight you change your mind about going to Toronto and you're sitting in the front row and you get up and run south down the exit row, where are you going to end up? Toronto, right? You can do whatever you want while you're on that plane, but running down the corridor the other direction isn't going to change your ultimate destination. The plane is going where the ticket says, and whatever you do in the interim isn't going to affect where you end up. Joseph's brothers... They were so offended at the concept that their brother, this younger brother, had this dream of them bowing down to them. So they used their will. They said, you know what, we're going to deal with this. We will make sure that we never bow to Joseph. So what did they do? They threw him in a well and sold him into slavery. And, what, and the paradox of that was 10 years later, 15 years later, what did they do? They bowed to him. They bowed to him. And what did Joseph say? What you intended for evil, God intended for good. God didn't call an audible. He wasn't surprised that you threw me in the well. He knew you were going to do that. He allowed you to do that. Your evil sin nature caused you to do that, and he was totally in control. And he used the fact that you put me in that well, sold me into slavery, to end up in Egypt, where I became the second most powerful person, so that the, Jew, the, the, Israel, the Jews could survived the famine living in the nation of Israel because Pharaoh honored Joseph by giving them uh, land in which they could live. But they bowed to him. Ultimately, we need to understand um, what we cannot understand and why we cannot understand it. So many times we approach God and we try to analogize what God is doing and our vertical relationship to God with the horizontal relationships we have with people. And the problem is God exists outside of space and time. And we don't perceive things the way God does. And so, so let me give you an example. Where does the sun rise? I mean, you all aren't country folk, but where does the sun rise? Who, who thinks the sun rises in the east? Okay, that's truth, right? The sun rises in the east, but actually the sun doesn't rise, right? Actually, the earth spins, so it's positional truth to say that the sun rises in the east, but the absolute truth, as we draw back and see what actually is happening, when we got out into space and could see what was going on, the sun was never rising. The earth was always spinning. And that's a picture of how we sometimes fail to absorb what God is doing because all we see is positional truth. We don't absorb absolute truth because we don't have the same perspective that God does. 
And the hardest thing for us to wrap our minds around is that the future is not something God just knows about. He's there. Like whatever's going to happen 100 years from now, he doesn't just know what's going to happen. He's already there. And whatever happened a thousand years ago, he doesn't just remember it. He's still there. He exists outside of space and time. What life for us unfolds is a series of events because we live inside this time continuum. It doesn't for God. He holds time in his hand. That's why it says that one day for God can be like a thousand years because time doesn't apply to him. And, and, and it's like we try to understand, understanding God for us is like sailors in the 1700s or when, before there was sonar and underwater cameras trying to understand what the bottom of the ocean is like. They could see the surface of the ocean. They knew there was an ocean there. They had some inclination how deep the ocean was because they could drop a, a rope down and take a sounding. But what was underneath was beyond their imagination. They had, it, it was beyond their comprehension because all they could see was the surface. And that's what Paul says. He says, even now we see dimly, but in the future we will be fully known. When we're in the presence of God, we're going to see things and understand things in an entirely different way. So if that's true, then what role do we play in our own salvation? If God is sovereign and in control of everything, what role do we play? Well, number one, we know that we cannot achieve right standing with God absent the vicarious redemptive work of Jesus Christ. We talked about this in the suffering uh, class. The suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross, he redeemed us, he purchased us with his blood vicariously. He did it on our behalf so that a perfect God who refuses to unite himself with anything less than perfection could unite with us. It happened through what Christ did on the cross. The problem is we conceptually get that, but most people, and I would put myself in this category, generally do not realize the scope of the sin problem that they suffer from. Some of them will say, I don't have a sin problem. Look, I'm not sick. I'm healthy. I'm okay. You're okay. Others will say, you know, I've got like a stomach bug of sin. Like it's a mild sickness, but maybe like a little Pepto-Bismol, um, you know, w- would deal with it. And, and it's nothing that every other red-blooded American doesn't deal with. I, you know, it's just, it's just a touch of sin. And others would say, you know, I'm pretty sick with sin, but look, I'm not a child molester, right? I mean, I, I'm not totally sick. I'm not on my deathbed. And, and I think that's how, I mean, I'll admit that. I've thought about myself that way. I've looked at other people and gone, you know, I'm not as sick as that dude. I mean, I may be sick, but, but that guy's way sicker than me. The Bible says, you're not just sick with sin. You were dead in sin. When Jesus goes and raises Lazarus from the dead, that is a picture of salvation. What was it? Was Lazarus sick? No, he was dead. What role did Lazarus play in raising himself to life? Was he like, oh, I'm sick, but man, if I get this medicine and I read this and I believe this, then I'll be... No, he was dead. He, had, he did nothing. Jesus did it all. And we too are dead in our transgressions. Ephesians 2.1 and multiple other places in Scripture. Do not be misled by social kindness. 
we're going to talk a little bit about this further. When I say you're dead in sin, that does not mean that you're a degenerate, the worst sinner as we think of things. We, most of us have figured out the social contract, right? We figured out how to you know, open doors for people at the post office, help little old ladies across the street. We figured that out that you, know, you give good, you get some good back. Don't let social kindness and comparative morality mislead you that you're not dead in sin because the Satan is more than happy to keep you right there in that way of thinking of, well, I'm not as bad as that person, so my sin problem's not that bad. No, you are dead in your sin. You are condemned by the word of God. And sin has left us powerless, even to consent to salvation, absent the working of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, real love has to sometimes act without the beloved's consent. Now, I've been with my wife a few times to take, all right, we've had three kids, to um, take them to get their vaccinations, you know, one month, three months. And I, I can remember taking my son, our oldest son, and carrying him, and, you know, he and I are just, man, I mean, he's having a great time. Dad's here. He's carrying me. He loves me. Man, this is awesome. I can look into his eyes and already tell that he thinks I'm the father of the year. I mean, we're, we're, we're tracking and so we go in the room, and now there's a doctor, and he puts this cold stethoscope, and I'm not a big fan of that, but hey, Dad's here, all's well. And then all of a sudden, a needle gets stabbed into his arm, and this kid, he looks at me like, oh, you broke the deal. Like, he's screaming like, I don't, I don't not just like you anymore, like, I hate you. What are you, I mean, you're subjecting me to this. And, you know, sticking people with a needle, you can go to jail for that kind of stuff, right? The only difference between that being a crime and, and, and what for my son was consent, right? I consented, my wife consented for our son to be stabbed with a needle for his own good. And I would tell you that the vaccine that started coursing through my son's veins, which would ultimately protect him from sickness, is the same thing of faith that is given through the Holy Spirit to us. That, that vaccine, my son didn't own that, right? That was given to him without his consent because I loved him. Our faith in Christ is given to us by God because he loves us. Hebrews 12, 2, Jesus, Jesus is the author of our faith. You are not the author. He is the author. And a word that's related to faith but is not the exactly same thing is belief. Now, I would tell you believe is an active verb, right? A passive verb, the passive use of the verb would be, uh, you know, to have been led. You know, you remember your teacher's probably encouraging you to write in active tense versus passive. But look, think about believe. Do you really control what you believe? You can make believe, right? You can expose yourself to certain facts. But ultimately, what you believe, you don't really control what you believe, you believe what your mind united, what your experience and what facts have you knit together in your mind to be your perception of reality. And the reality is that God loved us before we loved him. He created us to be loved and chosen by him to be the, to be, so his son would be the firstborn among many brothers. And the faith we have to absorb that came from him. 
And so many people will come up and say, after this, this class and say, you know, I was there. I walked down front, especially if they grew up Baptist, right? Like, I was nervous. I got up. I snuck out. I got in the aisle. I walked down front. I signed the card. I said the prayer. I, I did all those things. And I would say, and, and I borrow this from Matt Chandler, the faith that saved you, you had in your seat. You did all those things, but you only did those things as a result of the faith that was given to you in your seat. And the, the concept there is, can we really have a voluntary response to an irresistible attraction? See, if you really think about what the word irresistible means... It means irresistible. It means that really, um, I didn't have a choice, right? And we, we throw that word out, oh, he's irresistible, but you know, maybe we don't use it in the true sense of the word. But truly, if something is irresistible, you can't really have a voluntary response. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He opens our eyes up to see through faith that God has offered us a deal that not only that you can't refuse, but that you won't refuse. So yes, and amen, you responded. You took, you grabbed that offer of salvation. But I will tell you, the only reason you grabbed it is because God gave you the faith to see it. And once you saw it, there was no going back. Because it's just, it's, it's more than, I can't even give you an example that works perfectly, but it'd be like a billion dollars. Here it is. And some of you'd say, well, I wouldn't grab that because that brings a lot of you know, other things with it. Well, whatever example you want to use, it's, it's the most precious gift ever given, and it's right in front of you. He opens your eyes to see it. And so we voluntarily respond to an irresistible attraction. And so a lot of theories have been um, uh, espoused on this topic, right? We're not the first people to tackle this topic, and I think it's helpful. I don't want to get into it in any academic debate because, remember what I said, we're here to speak humbly and walk faithfully, but I do think it is helpful for you to be informed about the traditional approaches to this topic. And the first one is Arminianism. And I will tell you, I was a straight-running Arminianist for a lot of my life because it made sense to me. Right? And Arminianism, just basic, the point is, if you just boil it all down, is that I chose God, right? That I was confronted by the facts. Jesus offered a salvation. I got the fact that I was a sinner, and I was smart enough to choose God. And that's what Arminianism says. There's partial depravity, right? That there's conditional election based upon whether I respond to Christ. And then Arminianism says unlimited atonement, which frankly, for me, I think is right. I, 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 would, you know, I hate the, the term five-point Calvinism because that's not how Calvin wrote it. That's how we extracted some truths from a lot of what Calvin wrote, which were, I mean, his theology was, was incredibly deep. Not perfect, but incredibly deep. But unlimited atonement, I do think is supported biblically. Uh, you can look at 1 John 2, 2, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the world. The point there is Jesus died. His death was atonement enough for all sins ever committed by every person. Not all people will appropriate that atonement because not all people will believe in Jesus and they will stand accountable to God without Jesus' perfect sacrifice protecting them. But Arminianism would say that grace is resistible and that you can lose your salvation. Now, Calvinism, which 
emphasizes the sovereignty of God, says, no, you are totally depraved. Now, we talked about it earlier. Depravity does not always mean totally degenerate. Depraved men actually can be very religious and very philanthropic. It's dangerous to define depravity along the lines of relative morality. Basically, depravity means that fallen humans sin because they love and desire sin. And that will cause them to will to sin even if they don't always love the consequences. Romans 3.10, none is righteous, not one. All have turned away. You may be a kind person at certain times when it's convenient for you. You may be a remarkably kind person, but you are a totally depraved person in bondage to your will, which wills to sin. That may not always will to sin in the most horrific of ways, but anything that is not done out of the love of God, love for God, for his glory is sin. And that is where our wills stand, absent the work of the Holy Spirit. Unconditional election. Romans eight twenty eight through 30. All things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. Those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he glorified. God elects. It was his unconditional election. And there's other places we can go to as well. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, verses 11 and 12. Um, Clearly a biblical concept. Limited atonement, as I said, I don't subscribe that Jesus' death just atoned for, was was sufficient to atone for those uh, who were the elect. I, I would it appears to me scripturally you can say it was for everyone it's not a point to get really hung up on because the point is that the atonement only ends up working for those who end up believing in jesus irresistible grace john uh john 6 uh, jesus says no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him this drawing of people is what we were talking about on the last slide, the irresistible offer. It's the sovereign work of grace without which we would never be saved out of our rebellion. But God draws us in through irresistible grace. And lastly, the perseverance of the saints, which just basically says if you believe, you will be faithful to the end. If you are not faithful to the end, then you didn't believe. You may have lived a lot of your life with intellectual consent Uh, to who this God was, but you can go read the book of James or 1 John, and it basically says, look, I don't care what you say, you believe. What people say, as Wagner says, is what they think, or sometimes they say what they want you to think they think, but what you do is what you believe. And so the saints will persevere because if you believe, doesn't mean you won't walk through a season of difficulty, doesn't mean... Uh, you'll walk through a season where faith is a struggle. doesn't mean you won't walk through a season of sin, but you will in the end persevere because God is sovereign. He predestined he, and he called us. And when he calls us, he justifies us. And when he justifies us, he glorifies us. There's another less um, known concept, but Molinism, which is sort of the middle ground. And it talks about the levels of God's knowledge, and it basically diverts from Calvinism on the issue of depravity and atonement. Um, 
I still think it does not ascribe a high enough view of God. And ultimately, you can use the term Calvinist or not use it. It doesn't matter to me. It's not important. Being a Calvinist isn't what saves you. Having a right view of God is really important. And, and um, it's really hard to have a right view of God, a scriptural view of God, when, when you um, emphasize the sovereignty of man. Doesn't mean that people aren't Arminius that, that aren't saved, right? I mean, you can use that label. What saves is Jesus Christ. But the word, God has given us his word, and his word is clear. He's in control. He's not surprised. He justifies and he calls. So, let's deal with the difficult topic of what about those who have not heard or who do not have the ability to hear or understand the gospel? And the first thing I would say is, how much do I have to know in order to know what I need to know? Which I think is a great question. You all probably are like, what is that? Luke 8, 38, uh, 39. I love this. So Jesus goes over to a Gentile region of the Gerasenes. And there's this guy uh, that we refer to as the Gerasene Demoniac, which from now to the end of the time will be my fantasy football team's name. We are the Gerasene Demoniacs. Don't anybody steal that. But this Gerasene Demoniac, if you remember, he lived amongst the tombs, right? He, he was not in his right mind. He could break rope, uh, chains. Everyone was scared of him. And he runs up when Jesus shows on the scene and Jesus starts talking to the uh, demon and the demon says, we are legion because we are many. There's so many of us, you know, that, and Jesus cast out the demons and into the, the herd of pigs, which run and throw themselves into the sea. But the important thing is what happened at the end? The garrison demoniac, what did he do? He begged to follow Jesus. If you read it in, in Mark, this is also in Mark. It's in, I think, all the synoptic gospels. Uh, he begged to follow Jesus. And what did Jesus say? Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. This man, most likely a Gentile, had no training. Couldn't tell you who Calvin was because Calvin hadn't been born yet. Didn't own a New Testament. Didn't own an Old Testament. Didn't know anything about the Trinity. But Paul wasn't the first missionary to the Gentiles. This guy was. Because Jesus said, look, you go to your home and tell people what God has done for you. This guy was not going to be a theological scholar. What did he learn later in life? I have no idea. History doesn't tell us. But he had enough. He had an encounter with Jesus who had set him free. And Jesus said, don't come with me and learn more. Go and tell that story. That's all you need. So, I, you know, a lot of us spend a lot of time becoming smarter sinners, theologically educated people. And that is a good thing. I'm, I, God gave you your mind. The words are in there. We're commanded to handle the mature things of faith. But I'll also tell you, there's a lot of this stuff you don't have to know. You just got to know Jesus. And this guy knew Jesus. Now, we also know that greater revelation brings greater accountability. John nine forty one, Jesus talking to the Pharisees. He says, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. So, what does that mean? Well, how, I think it it speaks to the issue about what happens to an infant who dies in utero or after they're born. 
Well, first thing I would tell you is I put that child straight in the arms of Jesus Christ. Now, I need to do that on some other basis if I'm in a pastoral situation with a person who's struggling with this. But I have to be able to do that on some basis other than just what seems right to me. So the first thing is the ability to know God. You know, in Romans uh, 1, 1, 19 and 20, where it says, Paul says, because what can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen because they are understood through what has been made. So people are without excuse. You can rightly say, now Paul didn't say this, but you can rightly interpret that that text does not apply to someone who does not have the ability to perceive the world that God has created, an infant or a person mentally incapacitated to the point of not being able to understand what's going on. You could also point to John nine forty one that they are still blind to their sin because they don't have the intellectual capability to absorb the world around them and see the divine attributes of God. There's another place, Isaiah chapter 7, verses 15 and 16, where it suggests that there's an age, a mental capacity at which we become capable of discerning good and evil. Because Isaiah is talking about himself or as a young child before he knew what evil was. So, look, you're going to hear people talk about this age of accountability. And that basically what that says is before a certain age, People who die, or before a certain level of mental capacity, people who die are saved because they didn't have the mental capacity to understand sin, call on God. And you know, I have no problem with saying that, but I also tell you, you can't find that in the, in the scripture. It's not explicitly in there. What we point to is those verses. Now, some people also point to 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 21 through 23. This is where David is mourning the loss of the child who was born to... Um, as a result of, of his, uh, his affair. And um, that child ends up getting sick and dying. And the servants, if you remember in that, in that story, don't want to tell David that the child has died because David's been in sackcloth and ashes and not eating. They're like, man, when he finds out the child's dead, it's gonna, who knows what he's going to do. But David sees them whispering to each other and he says, tell me about the child. And they said, the child's dead. And he gets up and washes himself and eats. And they say, well, you know, when the child was alive, you, you didn't eat. You were in sackcloth and ashes. Now he's dead. You're eating. He said, well, look, I thought God might relent. But now I will not go or I will go to him. He will not return to me. And so people point to that and say David was saying he would see that child again in heaven. Well, the problem with that is David really didn't have an understanding of heaven like we do. You know, God's progressive revelation hadn't really revealed anything to David if we look at the scripture, other than Sheol, what they called the place of the dead, the Hebrews had some concepts about it, but didn't really understand the kingdom of God and heaven and what the things that we see in the New Testament. And so I really don't think that's a fair reading. It's, it's fine to say that, but I think accurately interpreted uh, what he's saying is, I'm going to end up going to the grave where that child is. He's not coming back to me and I need to move forward. But the last thing I would point you to is this. True believers come to Christ as little children. Every time Christ was around little children, do you think those children standing at his feet knew what the doctrine of reprobation was? Right? Did they understand what unconditional election was? Could they spell sovereignty? No. They just said, man, that guy is attractive. I want 
that. And Jesus said, that's how you come to me. You come as little children. And so based on that, on Christ's love for, the, for children and our own, and in that he also just shows us how infantile our own understanding of what God is doing because we have to approach him as little children because we can't explain everything he does. But based on that in the scriptures where we talk about the ability to know God and understand sin, I think it is very supportable that infants and mentally ill persons who die are hanging out with Jesus. Maybe a harder problem, though, is what about those who've never heard the gospel? And the one that, you know, everybody uses the example of, what about the guy in deepest, darkest Africa who hadn't heard? Well, look, I've been to pretty deep and dark Africa, and they, have, they are well aware who God is. They're more worried about Americans than we are them. They know who God is. So we might need to twist that analogy a little bit. You know, maybe it's an Eskimo, I don't know. But yet, are there unreached people in the world? Absolutely. We know that, right? Two things I would say. First of all, and then copying Blake Holmes, whatever is true of that person is not true of you. Because I go back to John 9, 41, where Jesus said, had you been blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But because you claim to see, you are guilty of sin. Greater revelation brings greater accountability. Now, in saying that, I am not saying that that person can be saved on the basis of general revelation. It just isn't... Paul just says it doesn't happen. All have sinned. The second thing I would say is there is not a person in deepest, darkest Africa or wherever you want to put that person who is desperately seeking for a God. Now, there are a lot of people who who's desperately seeking the true God. There are a lot of people, a lot of places seeking a God, right? They need a God to help order their worldview. They need a God to help deal with their issues. And there's all kinds of religions, but there isn't some person desperately seeking to know the true God. Why? Because we're depraved. We might, in, in, a, you know, in moments of clarity, philosophically think about what happens after death, or we might wonder how this whole world got created, but there's not a person desperately wanting to know this true God and God's just saying, nope, I'm not going to reveal myself to him. No, what's happening is six billion people. You know, sin is batting a thousand, right? The doctrine of original sin can be proven really easily because everyone's done it, right? If it's batting a thousand and all of us are running after idols of significance, security and sensuality and they look different in Africa and they look different in Asia and they look different here but that's what they are and we're running after those idols and God is reaching down to those whom he calls and saying, "Hey, stop." and grabbing them and turning them around. And so salvation is impossible apart from Christ. We know that. But we also know that God can reach anyone, anytime, anywhere through visions, dreams, angels, or missionaries. Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 was a devout dude, right? I mean, he prayed and, and he was, had given alms and, and all these good things, but God didn't save him because of that. What did he do? He sent an angel, right? Now, God communicates to people in a myriad of ways. What he generally prefers to use are people. And that's why you see that chart on the right 
side is we need to eventually reach all the people. We need God to raise up missionaries because Paul says, how can people know about Christ if no one goes to preach? And we need to go to the, the far corners of the earth and talk about Christ. But do I believe Christ? Do I believe there are people saved who maybe never met a missionary? Yeah, I actually do. How were they saved? Because God chose them and revealed himself to the, that person in a way that I don't know about. And I don't need to know about it and I don't need to speculate on it. What I do know is if they are saved, they were saved because they believed in Jesus. And if they believed in Jesus, it was because the Holy Spirit opened their eyes to who he is. So the objections that uh, this leads us to is, number one, does election teach that there will be people in heaven who don't want to be there? The answer is no. There are no conscripts marching in God's army. The people who are in God's army are sprinting towards him. And why is it? It's because the inward calling of the spirit is at work beneath our will. It makes the unwilling willing. It is the irresistible attraction that changes our hearts, takes a heart of stone and brings it to life. The sheep know and follow the voice of the shepherd in John 10, not because they're afraid the shepherd's going to beat them, but because they love the shepherd because he takes care of them. You know, Acts 16, 14, when Paul, when they're talking to Lydia and it says, the Lord opened Lydia's heart. That's literally what it says. The Holy Spirit allowed her to see. He didn't conscript her. He didn't elect her and say, you're coming on my side, even though you want to be in you want to face judgment. No, he opened her heart. And so his will, the inward calling is at work beneath our will. Another thing I've heard people say is, well, if election's true, then why should we be burdened to share the gospel with others? That one's actually a pretty easy one because Jesus said we should. That's number one. Number two is missions are 100x investments. You know, I'm in the uh, financial services world and a really, really good investment you sometimes refer to as a 10-bagger. If, if over time you get 10 times your original investment, well, I got one that's better for you because that implied risk, right? I might have lost that investment. Jesus is saying there are no risks. There is no risk if you're in mission according to I call you. There is no bad outcome for those who love the Lord. And missions are a hundred times investments. Mark 10, 28, no one who has left family for my sake in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times more so in the life to come. Paul said, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen that they may also obtain the salvation which is Christ. See, Paul, who had an incredibly high view of God's sovereignty, 90% of what I've quoted to you tonight on the sovereignty of God was written by Paul. And how did Paul live his life? Did he sit back and say, well, since God's sovereign, I guess I don't need to be out there working. No. I mean, he ran head first into danger. He sprinted to do everything he could do to teach people about Christ because he knew God was sovereign. He knew ultimately they weren't, it wasn't dependent on Paul, but he was compelled to preach the gospel because Jesus told him to. And if you love Jesus, you'll do what he, what he asks of you. He who has my commandment and obeys me, that's he who loves me is what Jesus said. And the last thing is, some will say, and it goes, we've kind of touched on this earlier, is if it's God's will, 
for all to be saved, then why aren't all saved? And the answer is we have to distinguish between the will of God and the love of God. God's passive will needs to be understood. He does not want any to perish. That is not his desire. But that is different than his decreed will by which he brings things to pass and causes things to happen. He does not wish anyone to spend eternity apart from him, but he will allow those people whom he does not call to spend eternity apart from him. But as C.S. Lewis so well said, hell is a prison that's locked from the inside. Right? The, 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 it's the people who have chosen a God of their own making get that God for all of eternity. He just doesn't happen to be the God of the universe. So the decreed will of God versus the passive moral will of God. The passive will of God includes things he might desire, but it's, not, it's different in a sense of things he foreordains to happen. So in conclusion, and then I want to open it up you know, for any questions, and I, I'm sure there will be plenty. Um, at the end of the day, this is all about Jesus Christ. He, what he did on the cross, dealt with my sin problem. The reason I love Jesus, whom I've never met personally, the reason I love him as a person is because of the Holy Spirit. A lot of people love what Jesus said. A lot of people love what he did. They love that he stood for social justice. They love the fact that he took on Rome. They love the fact that he had mercy on the woman caught in adultery. A lot of people love things Jesus said, but that's not what we're called to we are called to passionate devotion to Jesus, not to some creed, not to some cause, but to Jesus. And you can only love Jesus in that way if you are called. And if you're here and you're struggling with whether you're called or not, you don't have to struggle. Because if you are wrestling with the things of God, it's because God is causing you to wrestle with the things of God. You don't have to worry that you're calling on a God who... Um, isn't going to answer the phone. No, what I'm telling you is he picked up the phone and put it in your hand and dialed the number for you. I can, you know, we can talk about um, a lot of other things, but at this point, I think it would be appropriate to turn over and love to hear if anybody has questions about what we talked about tonight. And we've got a microphone, I guess, because we're recording this. So, um, thoughts or questions? Surely there's some. Yeah. So, if we're praying uh, for someone uh, that doesn't know Christ or, or we or is not a believer or doesn't claim to be a Christian or anything like that, what does, I guess, a prayer like that look like as far as are we asking God to change his mind that they become predestined or that they respond to the call, or what does it look like? Man, that, that is a great question. And I heard someone say, well, you know, pray like an Arminianist and believe like a Calvinist, right? And so 
What am, uh, first of all, understand, God's not waiting around for us to pray, but it does say that the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And so you pray, you use all of your faculties, your will, your thought, your thinking, everything, you focus it towards God. And, and in love for the person who doesn't believe, God, I pray that you change this person's heart. Use me as a way to direct this person to you. Use anything, God. Help me be part of what you're wanting to do in this person's life. Pray that. Absolutely. Look, many places in Scripture, Paul is praying that fervent prayer, but ultimately he knows that God's in control. And so absolutely pray for that. You're commanded to pray for that. But know that he's in control. Any other questions? We got one back there. I'm still really confused about the the God calling people. So, because there are some scriptures that say um, he, you know, he elects certain people, and um, faith is a gift from him. And um, but, and then there's, and I don't know the scriptures by heart, but the other scripture that he wishes none would perish. Mm-hmm. So are we to believe through the Bible that he calls every single person? Is that what it says in the Bible? It does not say that. It does say he wishes none would perish, but it doesn't say he calls every single person. Correct. So some people may not come to him then. Correct. Because so, he didn't call them. Correct. Romans eight twenty eight through 30, I think is, is one of the best places to go. And it's those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Now, let me stop right there. What a lot of people want to do with foreknowledge is they want to say, so what that means is God ultimately knew in the future when he created the world, he knew how that person was going to act. And therefore, based on that person's obedience, that's how he called them. That's you know, they, they want to, uh, I heard Matt Chandler use the description, they say that God jumps in the DeLorean, adjusts the flux capacitor, drives back, you know, to the beginning of time and writes their names in the Lamb's Book of Life, right? But that's not what foreknowledge means if, you, if we walk through that verse. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he called. The predestination is tied to the calling, the effectual calling of God that called certain people out of being hell-bent to sin. We are all giving ourselves to sin, but he called some people out of it. And those whom he called, he justified. And how did he justify them? He justifies them through the faith he gives them in the vicarious, redemptive suffering of Jesus Christ. He didn't justify them based on their own actions. Blood, the atonement for sin requires the shedding of blood. Jesus' blood that was shed on the cross atones for sin. We are justified, put in right standing with God by virtue of that. We appropriate that through the calling of God, which leads us to believe that Jesus did what he said. And ultimately, those whom he justifies, he glorifies. Now, you referred to that verse about, and it's in here a couple times, 1 Timothy 2.4. God doesn't wish anyone to perish, but that's God's moral will versus his decreed will. Okay, in, in Romans, we talk about Paul. Paul points out that God could have judged at any point. 
right? God could have judged at any point, but he, in his great patience, allows people to continue in their lives of sin to give time for them, for, in order that he can show his righteousness to those whom he calls. But the ultimate answer is, God is the primary mover. Just like the example I used, the vaccine of faith that goes into us, I contend, and I would tell you that most people in leadership at this, at, at this body of Christ would contend, comes from the Holy Spirit, that God is the first mover. I would agree. I mean, I feel that for myself, but I mean, isn't that heartbreaking to some people to know that? Yeah. Sin is heartbreaking. Not the sin, but that if he didn't call them specifically, they may not, they may not come to him. So is what, what it says is that some people, like this group of people, he specifically calls and wants. These people, they can come to him if he wants, but he's not going to put out a call for them. Right. What it says is all of us have given ourselves to sin. We've all locked ourselves in a prison of sin. Right. By our choices. God has chosen in his great mercy, not because he was obligated to, to reach into that prison and yank a few of us out. It is our job who have been yanked out of that prison to continue to stand at the edge of the prison and preach about what God has done for them. So I live my life in a way that is if it's contingent on me. But I take an incredible amount of faith right. that it's not contingent on okay, me. Okay, I think I'm getting it. I think it's coming together because he. But it's wants hard. To Look, use I use like half the population to help bring the others, and then that also shows their faithfulness in him by continuing to do that. Like uh, Paul's faithfulness. Absolutely, because that's the great commission. Jesus said, "Go into the world and preach the gospel." God could have used any method He wanted to to reach people. But he's using people. He uses people. people. Got it. Okay, I got it. Thank you. Great question. You got one right there. Um, I guess one, we've been talking, I, to me there's one thing that's been kind of been left out. In, in, but what's the power of the devil? What is the power of the devil? Great question. The devil is God's devil. Right, And we talked about this in the suffering and the sovereignty of God. The devil is the prince of this world. He has power, but he is operating completely under God's control. Totally under God's control. God isn't surprised by any move he makes. Now, one of the questions that I can't really answer for you, and I've heard this is one of the places where I hear people speak with a great deal of conviction like they know and it concerns me, is did Satan want Jesus to be crucified? I, I would contend yes, that, that, he, that Satan thought he was winning. Now, Satan, unlike God, is not omniscient. Satan is incredibly predictive, right? He's, like we said, batting a thousand uh, as far as leading us into sin. But he's not omniscient in that he knows what the Bible says, but I think God hid it from him of how he was going to use Christ crucifixion, what ultimately appeared to be the triumph of evil, to actually bring life. I don't know that. I can't tell you, you know, you can point to various places in scripture, but the point is Satan is free 
to a degree like you and I are free. We, he has a provisional amount of sovereignty. His sovereignty is greater than ours, most likely, but it ultimately all is happening under the banner of God's ultimate sovereignty, who is using your actions, my actions, Satan's actions, the demons. He's using all of that to reveal himself. And he's using it to reveal his righteousness, and ultimately, to, he's going to deal with it all. I guess another question I have, changing pace. One thing, I mean, obviously it's a struggle here, uh, and you touched on it. It's always the accountability of man. Like, what? how accountable are we in our faith? And and because and, sometimes, thing, I mean, your slides, you have our very Armenianistic type of slides, and then there's very Calvinistic type slides. And I guess sometimes it's hard for me not to think that if it's all under God's control, then we're just kind of pawns in... His, like I, I mean, this is really, I'm trying to think the way to say this in the best way. But it's just as kind of we're chess pieces in this game to, to glorify him. And he'll use his sum that will be sent to damnation. And it will be used as sum to glorify his name. But I guess I think that's a pretty, probably a pretty poor way of putting it. But Actually, I don't think just, that's, a, that's a poor way of putting it. I think <clears throat> what you've got to remember is you say you're a pawn. I say, no, you have freedom of choice for which you are accountable. In your freedom of choice, which is in bondage to your will, which is enslaved to sin, you continually, I continually choose to sin, right? I am moving away from his end of the chessboard. There are those through his son who he reconciles to himself and pulls and takes them from being pawns and turns them into kings, not because of the merit of the person who's being ch- changed, but, but, but because of the merit of his son who turns pawns into kings. We are accountable. The Bible says it in numerous places. We will give an account. You know, there's two judgments in the Bible. And understand, there's the judgment of righteousness, right? Which you're either in or out because of whether you've appropriated the work that Jesus done. And then there's the judgment of works, Right For those of us who are believers who stand before Christ and give an account of ourselves in that way. And that's not ultimately a judgment for where we spend eternity, but it is a judgment of, of reward and what God's doing. And so, look, there is a ton of accountability of man. And in the same verse where we talk about the accountability of man, we, Paul, whoever the writer is, the Holy Spirit writing, talks about the sovereignty of God. And that's why I said it's an antinomy. Right? Like, as we perceive the world, it feels like we are in control with a power of choice. Now, I know that I can't be in control, or sin wouldn't be winning six billion to zero. But right now, it's winning six, it's run ruled us a few times. So, we're not really free because we all keep going back to sin. And so, God reaches down into the chess game where we're way outmatched by the enemy and pulls us out of that chess game. And inserts his son in the place of us so that, like I said, we can go from being pawns to being kings. But we are accountable. But he's in control. And, and I, there, anyone who tries to make it simpler than that, I would tell you is not being faithful to the text. It's just there's a tension there. And you embrace the tension. And Carlos, do you have a yeah. question? Yeah. 
Thank you. Relating back to the lady's question, young lady's question in the back, is it true to, is it fair, accurate to summarize that if you look at all scripture, it communicates that if anyone comes to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, it's 100% because of God's election. Scripture indicates that. Mm-hmm. And Scripture also indicates that if anyone rejects that, it's a consequence of their unbelief, their choices, their free will. Is that correct? Right. Okay, where we go as people is we try to then close that loop to say, therefore it must follow that. And scripture, there's no scripture that says anything anywhere about God condemning anyone to hell. That's always in scripture as a result of it's a person's... It's the wages of sin. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so you sit here, I sit here and go, well, how can that be? How can I reconcile that? I think that harkens back to the first point of what one of the first things Aaron said is, and that is that we are called to absorb God's truth and let Scripture go as far as Scripture goes, but not force it to go any further. So to me, that's an ambiguity that, okay, I get that I don't get that. But then the greater thing is the clarity that's provided in the Great Commission and the clarity that's provided in being examples of salt and light and the clarity that's provided in going out and living a life that is outrageously indicative of the Holy Spirit being in your life and letting that be used by God to call people. Is that fair? I think that's very fair. And if we don't do it, the rocks will cry out, right? If people don't do it, it says rocks will cry out. You got one more in the back. I don't know how. We, got, we have five minutes. Um, but, yeah, to, to Carlos's point, it's... It, 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 don't just hear God condemns people to hell. People who spend eternity apart from God earned that. That was the wages, the just wages of their sin. Yeah. Okay, so he said, um, I love how you clarified each point. If anyone comes to a saving faith in Christ, it is only through God's grace and his calling, correct? From what you said through right. the scriptures, we see that. I only just came to Christ last year. So I've spent a lot of my life not with Christ. And I don't know why God chose to just turn on the switch. Christ came to you last year. Right. Okay, exactly. So let me ask you then, why do so many Christians pressure people about coming to Christ as if it somehow is in their control? I mean, I even went to the state fair last year, and there was a booth of Christians. I don't know where they were from. And they asked me if I was a believer in Christ or if I had been saved, and I said yes. And they said, are you sure, really? Are you sure? As if they wanted to pressure me. And I said, yes. I mean, I'd been baptized. Like, I couldn't prove to them that I was. Mm -hmm. But so many people, and I've even seen people in this church that, almost taken on as if it's going to be what they do that brings someone to become a believer in Christ. That is such a great point. And first of all, let's deal with what saves you. Because a lot of people who come at it that way think a prayer saves you. Prayers don't save you. If prayer saves you, that's like an incantation. That's witchcraft. Jesus saves you. Okay? Not the prayer, 
but Jesus. And so what people will do, and look, I'm guilty of this. I used to, you know, I think I'm fairly persuasive with words and I would try to, man, I'd be honed in with someone and, and what I tried to do honestly was make the gospel like on a, make it more sellable. I tried to make it less offensive. And I've really come to be convicted in my heart of that. That's not what you do. You kind of say, look, here it is. And I, I'm happy to pray with you right now, but I don't want you to think these magical, you're going to say some magical words. I mean, Billy Graham's done that for years. I get it. I, I don't have a problem with it. But that's not what saves. It's the faith that saves. And so, absolutely. That's why Paul said, preach the full counsel of God. Don't make it sound easy. Don't try to argue them in or strong arm them in. Because if you can strong arm them in, someone else can strong arm them out. What you do is say, this is what the Bible says. This is how I live my life in response to that. Not perfectly, but humbly. And I speak faithfully. And I pray that God opens your eyes. And if he can use me with you in that, then let him use me. But ultimately, it's going to be God calling this play. God's the one who's running the play. And we're just, we're mere conduits for what he's doing. So that is a great point. Don't try to sell the gospel. Just tell the gospel. And trust that the Holy Spirit will do the work. So I think we've got time for one more. Does anybody else have something they're really itching to ask? Going once, twice. All right. Well, hey, thanks, Aaron, for your time. And, Thank you. And, uh, I, yeah, I would, for sure, yeah, give my hand. This is a this is an extremely complicated um, issue. I think I think if you walk away from tonight with with two um, really solid truths, um, then, then I think you're doing good coming out of this because you can get your uh, mind wrapped around this and it get, gives you a headache. But uh, just walking away um, with the with the overwhelming love of God, right? That God loves the world, and and uh, and yet at the same time, uh, election. Um, is really I've heard I heard a guy say this one time. Election is really uh, a doctrine to be taught to believers um, for their own edification, that they're sealed in Christ, um, and that that uh, that who is elect is not knowable for us. It's our responsibility to go and make disciples, and um, and so that's why I loved what you said a second ago. Like, hey, live like a Calvinist, but pray like an Arminian. You know, and I do that all the time, man, because. Um, I know that I'm chosen and sealed, but I have no idea who else, and so it's my responsibility to, to uh, preach the gospel. And I just encourage you guys to do the same thing. Hey, um, hey, thanks for this class. Thanks for coming um, for the, this, well, seven weeks. We took a week off. But, uh, man, we really do hope and pray that, that you guys have been um, equipped um, to better answer some of the tough questions that are out in the public square. We're, we are going to continue to offer equipping classes. I think the next one is going to be in April. And that's a cover-to-cover class. That's, so it's basically uh, Bobby Crotty and Blake Holmes will be teaching kind of all the way through the entire Bible, okay, in six weeks. And so that's just going to give you a really great, broad, you know, 30,000-foot um, flyover of Scripture to help you understand what's going on there. But one of the things that will really help us is, is just y'all's honest comments on those evaluation forms. So on your way out, if you'll just drop those on the, on the last table, um, out and if you did not get one, if you, man, seriously, if you would take like five minutes and just fill that out for us really quick, we'd really appreciate that. Okay, let me pray for us. I'll close our time. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for Aaron, thank you for Ray, um, just thank you for these guys that are faithful to use their gifts that you've given to them and the, and the minds that they've stewarded to be able to accurately uh, communicate truth. And I pray that people would walk out of here encouraged that um, for those who are in Christ, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, um, but that we would have a driving passion to communicate your love to a world that's far from you. Um, we just love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.